and I had some great, some fascinating conversations. And you know, sometimes the, the in-depth debates you have in the evening over pizza when you know that it doesn't really matter. It was probably the most extraordinary theological case I'd heard from Steve Petch arguing that the star that guided the wise men to Jerusalem was in fact the devil. Um, just absolutely amazing claim. And um, it, was, it, was, it was fairly developed. I mean, he's, I sat down and he said, we need you to rehabilitate the magi for us. And then he made a pr- protracted case for the fact that the devil was in fact the one who led the wise men and then fi- might in fact have been the star, which I thought was an, an amazing. I still can't tell how serious he was being. <laughs> Mildly. <laughs> I know. It was, oh, don't you get involved, Simpkins. Honestly. No, no. <laughs> so literally, apparently at Welcome Church in Woking, they're not allowed to preach from that story because... <laughs> you've got to ask why God would tip off King Herod, haven't you? You've got to ask why you get a bunch of... So, um, as you can see, the can is open and the worms are everywhere. Um, so <laughs> but anyway, so that was probably my, my sort of theological highlight of last night. It was really great fun. So, um, but this is, I feel like if you can't debate that here, where can you? You know, so really, really good fun. So, um, we are, have we got the, um, got the slides and everything all, all, all set? Um, Okay, good. So at some, I think maybe at the beginning of the last session, I want to do some crowdsourcing about next year's theme. I've got a couple of ideas, but I want to sort of throw that out for you to consider and then just see what people think. Um, and then obviously we'll finish the session before lunch just doing some, some thank yous as well. Um, but we have actually still got quite a lot of material that I'd, I'd love to get through if we can, particularly the final one, an evangelical reading of Matthew, meaning not so much like a a, you know, theologically precise version, but more like a gospel-centered reading of Matthew. I want to make sure we get to that um, as well. But the next couple of pages are drawn from uh, Dale Bruner, who I have been, um, you know, plugging and, and, again, enormously enjoyed. And these next two pages are basically a, t- a table version of his structure of Matthew. You remember on the very first, probably the very first page, I think, I said, he just says we have the, the Christ book and the church book. Um, but he does a lot more detail than that. And what I think is fascinating is this is what I call a doctrinal reading of Matthew, which is you almost use Matthew, it's a, a very different way of approaching it, and say, I'm going to come to this not so much as story of Israel, which I think we can and should, or not so much as a wisdom text, a ethical reading, all those things, but more a way of reading it as a, as if, let's say we were trying to find our systematic theology from this book. What would we get? And it's really interesting how much you can do. And, the way, and he structured his entire commentary like this, but it's really fascinating. So it says, chapter one, we have a doctrine of God. Um, the genealogy, the birth, and the name. Chapter two, we have the doctrine of humanity. The, sorry. The, <laughs> the, the devil and the star, clearly. Um, King Herod the child. Chapter three, the doctrine of Christian initiation. Repentance, baptism. Chapter 4, the doctrine of ministry, the temptations, the three, he calls the three temptations and the three services. Chapter 5, the doctrine of mercy. And then you can see, as you just go down, the doctrine of faith and how it works, both in your private devotions and in your, the goals and aim of faith. Uh, the doctrine of justice. And then the five miracles of grace and five miracles of freedom, which is an interesting way of thinking about those ten. I think it's the only way some people would group the, the eight chapters, eight to nine, as three groups of three um, and the reason why there's a, obviously one of, the, one of the stories has two miracles in it, so that's why there's a debate about whether there's nine or ten. Um, and then he says five miracles of freedom. 
Then there's obviously the doctrine of evangelism. I don't think that's difficult to, to pull off with uh, chapter 10. And then, I, I know there sounds slightly strange titles here, the, the doctrine of Christ, the saviour and the judge, <laughs> fish Christ and fire Christ. To me, this is where he falls foul of the alliteration thing a little bit, because fish Christ, well, it took me a long time to work out what he meant, but he's talking about the idea that in chapter 11, Christ is the one who goes fishing for Gentiles, as in to try and attract and draw in, um, whereas chapter 12 is more like the baptism, the, the, the judgment, so the baptism of spirits and fire. And I'm going to come and I'm going to bring, you know, blessing, but I'm also going to come and bring judgment. So that's what he means, but it's a slightly in my view, slightly strange way of saying it. Um, and then goes on to, so that's, that's the, the first bit. Then he goes, oh, wrong one. Then he goes to the doctrine of the church from chapters 13 to 28. And some of this I find a bit more, some, the first one I think, well, it's a, little, it's a little bit tenuous in various ways, but there's some interesting, there's some bits that work and some bits that don't. But I think on the doctrine of the church, there's, there's more to it. And actually the idea of thinking about the second half of, or more than half of Matthew, as relating specifically to the doctrine of the church, is pretty compelling, I think. And Matthew's clearly got a lot more interest even in the concept of the church. And he's the person who talks, this is the gospel where Jesus talks about the church. Um, clearly he's gathering a people and he's promising them his presence with them. And he's, but the idea of, to, the other gospels, it would be quite weird if in John you were to find a section certainly before the resurrection, on church discipline or that, that sort of thing. Whereas in Matthew, it, it's, that's what he does. So this is how you are to maintain the purity of the church. And so the, and he uses the word church twice. And you're Peter and on this Brock, I'll build my church. And then this is what we're going to do in the, as a way of preserving. If, if, if people don't listen to you or your brother, take them to the church. Now, prior to the cross... That is quite unusual. In the, it was very unusual in the Gospels. It's the only time that something like that is said. I think you do get an example of that in at the end of John, in John 20, where Jesus then commissions the apostles and says, if you withhold forgiveness, it's forgiven. So I think that's the equivalent in John. And in Mark and Luke, you don't get anything like that. So I do think he's very interested in the doctrine of the church. And so walking through the doctrine of the kingdom with seven parables, uh, the doctrine of responsibility, and we'll come to that in a moment. The five receptions, I, I like. The, I really like the, what he does with that. Um, the, <laughs> the doctrine of Catholic evangelicalism. Now, I, I, Catholic with him, yeah, as in Catholicos, as in universal rather than Roman evangelicalism. But we'll come to that one because I think he does a fantastic job with the with the solas. He basically gets the the well. He says he's only drawing out four. I think you can draw out all five of the solas of the Reformation from Matthew 15 which is a really fun way of thinking about it if you're going to preach it. Like, oh, gosh. That, that, I, so we'll come to that in a moment. Um, then literally the doctrine of the church proper, Christocentricity, the confession of Peter, and cruciformity, the, the cross-shaped life. Uh, the doctrine of authority, the doctrine of community, the congregational ethics in the church in chapter 18. And so someone yesterday, uh, maybe the day before, was asking about where do chapters 18 to 20 fit in the story of Israel? And I said, well, in some ways they don't because there's not much narrative there. And Bruno would say, yeah, that's right, because it's partly a, a, a teach, lots of teaching and modeling of how the church is intended to function, um, which I think is an interesting overlay. But this is a different way of reading the book. But I think you, you place that insight alongside the narrative insight and you say yeah it does almost the narrative pauses for a while and we see much more explicit teaching about how the church on the other side of the resurrection should and will function you have the doctrine of the home which again I, I like this one I think Mark 19 is a chapter on domestic ethics marriage children and money I, th I find that quite compelling when you read Matthew I mean it's two major stories or two major you know discussions debates but I think it's quite 
compelling. I like it. Um, uh, then the doctrine of leadership, you might call vocational ethics on pride, direction, ambition. Then you have the true people of God, the wise people of God, and the false people of God. I mean, some of his alliteration here is a stretch, but kind of really fun. So look at chapter 22. Four questions. Socio-political, supernatural, scriptural, sonship. You go, well, it's almost like you can tell he's like a regular preacher who's going, if I can't alliterate it, it obviously isn't true. But, as, as he's just, but some of it is actually really just a, a way of dividing up chapters. So there's material here for those who are going, I, I'm, if I'm going to preach through this, I'm not going to do Matthew 1 to 28 just as typology. Um, along back to Stuart's question on the first day. Like, how, how does this inform your preaching? In many ways, some of what Bruno does with some of these chapters is better suited to preaching than the typological reading, even though I think overall the typological reading is a better way of thinking about the purpose of the book, than actually for discipling people and forming people and teaching people, this might help us more, um, depending on how long our, our preaching series are and, and how much detail we go into. Then the false people of God, the seven woes, of, that obviously... Last things, last judgment. Doctrine of worship, we'll come back to that. That if, <clears throat> excuse me, there is effectively a worship liturgy in Matthew 26, uh, which I really like. Um, and then obviously the cross and resurrection. So that's what Bruno does with it. And I think as a way of just sort of drawing out different doctrines at different stages in the book, it's a really interesting way of doing it. Anybody want to ask a question at this point about either of those two pages? Um, we'll jump into some more detail on a couple of them that I find most useful in a moment. But um, yeah, any, any questions or comments? I always wait for the first one. Yes, I didn't need to wait. Sammy Davis Jr., right? Is that your name? Yeah. yeah. Uh, just a I think he's also got maybe the nicest accent here. Oh. I don't know. When, yeah, it's a really... Where, where are you from originally? Uh, South Wales. Yeah. And still. And still. Yeah, that's very good. You've kept it well. How, how much material in Matthew uh, is missed out in this chart? As in, how many times does he sort of thin it all up to verse 20 and then pick up? Oh, I know, he doesn't at all. I mean, he, he, I think in fairness to him, like the entire commentary is structured with these chapter headings and he tries to follow the theme through. I think in reality, I mean, the, the bits where I've put verse references, um, there, there obviously looks like there's bits, say, um, yeah, so for instance, where is, you might say, where is Matthew 16, 1 to 12 in that schema? But he, he, he covers it. I'm just bringing out the, what I think the key headings within the chapters. But yeah, he, he, he sticks with it. Now, obviously, it, not, it doesn't all work. And I don't think anyone other than maybe him thinks that this is the best structural approach to the whole book. But I also think he's kind of knowingly and a bit, even slightly tongue-in-cheek at times, but I think he's knowingly going, I'm going to, I'm going to read this as if it is a repository of Christian doctrine and use that because it's a unique way of... I think commentaries almost need to justify their existence. So like, what am I bringing to the table that isn't just, well, here's the things other people have said this passage, it probably means this, which has just been done to death. In, so I think you almost need to bring something fresh to a way of reading it, and he really does, but I think he knows that at certain points there's bits that are less suitable for that than others, I expect. Any others? He's also done a great commentary on John, which I, which I really like. His one on Romans is much less good, in my view. But um, I think he's really good on the Gospels. Why was it? I, why did that get a laugh? I don't. There was a little ripple of. Um, anyway, I don't know. <laughs> um, any others? We're happy. Okay. So. So this is. I don't want to spill my coffee. Sorry. Um, so the five, the, the five responses that come through from the very end of chapter 13, but mainly chapter 14, um, 
I, I, I really like this. I think this is a helpful way of thinking about it, that you've effectively got five different ways. And again, the, the alliteration will cause some to chuckle, I expect. But there's five different ways of responding to Jesus' message clustered together in, in chapter 14. It's really the very end of chapter 13 as well. Nazareth's mental rejection, Herod's moral rejection, the disciples' material reservation, Peter's mixed reception, and the Gentiles' model reception. And on its own, you'd say, okay, well, there's a bit of alliteration and five responses to Jesus. But if you overlay that with the fact that he's just told the parable of the sower about the different ways in which the seed will take root, and then you see examples, I think, of all four soils running through the next chapter, it becomes really convincing, I think. Um, again, you may not. But So you have Nazareth's mental rejection at the end of chapter 13. So obviously this sometimes gets lost because you read all the parables and you think Matthew 13 is all parables. And of course it isn't because at the very end it then says, well, this is the, the way people responded. They were astonished. They took offense at him. The prophet is without honor. Again, do you remember that in Luke, that sort of kerfuffle about the way Nazareth responds to their native son becoming a big prophet happens right at the start of the ministry in Luke 4. In Matthew, that takes place after all the parables have been told. And so Matthew, Matthew and Luke have obviously organized the material very differently. I mean, this is chronologically in quite a different place in the, in the gospel. And so for Matthew, it's associated with the teaching that he's bringing, much of which is about, of course, dividing up the different responses. So there's a net, and some are going to be good, some are going to be bad. There's a, uh, the wheat and growing alongside the weeds. There's four different responses to the parable of the sower. And that seems to be what's got up everyone's nose in, in Matthew's telling of it. And that makes me think, okay, so is, this, is Nazareth like the first soil? It's like he's preached it, and almost immediately the seed has just been taken away. It's not taken root at all. Bears no fruit. Everyone just gets very offended immediately. Is that, like, that sounds like kind of first soily kind of response. Then you've got Herod's rejection. Obviously, Herod, this is the story about the beheading of John the Baptist. But you see with him, um, it's interesting how much, when you think about the character of Herod and what he's doing, how much of the Sermon on the Mount's teaching seems to be barbed towards Herod in chapter 5. So Matthew 5, this sort of disrespect for the law, anger, lust, adultery, taking oaths and taking revenge. So you'd almost think Herod is like a kind of sum of all... I was going to say some of all fears, but that's Tom Clancy, isn't it? But some of all of those different things together, he's pretty much done the exact opposite of everything in Matthew 5. And you clearly wouldn't call him poor in spirit, right? So he's like the embodiment of the opposite of the kingdom. And in that sense, you know, he also represents a total rejection. He doesn't, there's no, doesn't, the, the kingdom doesn't seem to get any traction with him at all. He just wants to chop his head off. He wants the seed of the word to be picked up by the birds and taken away. Then you have the disciples' material reservation, which is the disciples have heard the word, but the cares of the world make them unfruitful. And I think, obviously, I'm deliberately using the language of the third soil in that, in that section, but I think you can see it taking place. I think there's a connection there. Then you have Peter's mixed reception, which is that Peter, of course, is very full of faith and exuberant, and yeah, yeah, we can do it, but also very shallow. And again, deliberately using that language, but I think it works somewhat for his response in verses 22 to 20, 33. And then Bruna says, aren't these two stories then church history exactly? So should we turn there, right? Let's, some of you are going, just a little bit foggy on exactly what that is. So let's go to Matthew 14. So Matthew 14, 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray.
When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, I am, don't be afraid. It's just one of my favorite lines. I know it's it is I in many of our translations, but take heart, ego, I me, I am, don't be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now, obviously, if you read that through the parable of the sower, you'd say, well, in the end, Peter and all the disciples become, apart from Judas, become the fourth soil. Obviously, they do bear dramatic fruit, including us, right? But actually, at this point, this idea of, yes, I'm very confident, I'm very full of faith. Oh, my goodness, I'm now saying, I've just got nothing. There's no roots to this at all. And you collapse in a heap into the waves until Jesus then rescues you and pulls you out. So I do think you can see that as a kind of a mixed bag of response from Peter. And then finally, you have the Gentiles' model reception. Um, So this is uh, verses 34 to 36. And when they'd crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it were made well. Um, And so they, yeah, they recognized him. They sent word. They brought to him all who were sick. They implored him. They were as many as, of course, it says here, as many as touched it were made well. So so, as many as touched it were saved. Now, obviously, it means made well physically. But again, so Bruno's saying this is actually this is the best response you get in chapter 14. So these various responses from really bad Nazareth and Herod through to everybody who touches him gets saved. They all implore. They send word. They effectively evangelizing about the effectiveness of Jesus's ministry. And he's, I think, drawing quite a lot out of three verses there, but I think quite well as well. I think, oh yeah, you don't, you don't really, when you read it like that, you just go, oh, this is another one of those healing stories. Back to, you know, my fellow elder who was always like, how on earth do you preach these differently? Like, just, that's another story. Jesus turned up and some people were ill and now they're not. How do we, what do we do with that? How do you do it better? And I think Bruno's done really well here just to go, yeah, there, this is actually a, a series of stories about the different ways people respond to the presence of Jesus. And it does have some overlay with the parable of the sower, I think. I think that's stuff. So, any comments or questions on that? Hmm. Thank you, Apple. That's very good. Yes. Sorry? Good from Bruno. Yeah. And I'm, as I said, I'm just, all I do, read books, turn them into shapes. That's, that's it. So, um, so, yes. But I mean, and some of it, yeah, some of it's more convincing than others, of course. And you, you read through, you think, is the feeding of the 5,000 really a story about the disciples' material reservation? I mean, it, and clearly, Bruno wouldn't say it was, and neither would I, as if that's the main point. But I think that there are clearly different responses to Jesus, and they do mirror, to some degree, the, the, the parable of the sower. Now, on. My favorite one of these that he does is the next one, which is the five, well, I'm, I'm, I'm adding a fifth, the fifth solar. Um, he doesn't really do this, but I think you can. I actually go further than Bruno on getting doctrine, but I really like this. If I was preaching, I don't think I have preached Matthew 15 since I've, uh, since I've read this book. I don't think I've, I'm not sure I've preached it at all, actually. Um, 
But he goes through the, the solas in Matthew 15 to 16. Says, okay, so we have the doctrine of sola scriptura, which I think is a very good reading of what happens in chapter 15 and verses 1 to 20. So let's just have a, again, let's remind ourselves. Matthew 15, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Now, Bruno is pretty robustly Protestant on this point, and is quite happy to go, that's effectively, if you wanted a, you wanted a proof text for the Reformation doctrine of Scripture, that would be a good one to use. You have made void the word of God by your tradition, which is not to say that all Catholic traditions are anti the word or anything like that, but... Plenty of them at the time and probably to this day still are. And there's this, it's a very direct challenge. And I think if you were going to try and draw the doctrine of sola scriptura out of the Gospels as opposed to out of the sort of church history as a whole or out of Paul, this would be a great text to go to. Go to. He's saying you have made void the word because of your tradition. You're not, the word says this and you're not doing it because you have this other tradition that has become so full of accretions that it's ended up silencing what the word actually says. It's a really good way of doing dogmatic theology from a gospel story, I think. You move on to sola fide, by, you know, faith, by faith alone. Um, sorry, my phone's just sitting zeroed out for a moment. So, uh, Verses 21 to 28. We read this story yesterday. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he didn't answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Which I know a number of people were quoting yesterday when there was insufficient pizza. I heard various people making this reference. I just thought, I love theological conferences. The, the range of jokes is, uh, is very enjoyable. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And Bruno says, that's a story about the power of faith alone. That's all she's got. She's not, in, she's not entitled to it, but she just believes and as a result is instantly healed. Then you've got Soli Deo Gloria, verses 29 to 31. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. That's, that's, they're, they're in, this isn't attributed. They actually don't even just say they glorified Jesus let alone they glorified the miraculous way in which he did that, this, that, or the other, or a thing, or a relic, or, you know, this is, all glory goes to God when God does something great. So there's glory to God alone. Then you have a story about grace alone, uh, the feeding of the 4,000. I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So it's the grace of God coming through. Bruna says, the less the disciples had and the bigger their problem, the more the Lord did. The arithmetic of the two feedings adds up to a theology of grace. 
So would the feeding of the five or 4,000 have happened if they'd actually said, oh, as it, as it happens, we brought with us enormous bags of food ourselves. We've brought loads to the party. And actually, of course, it's the fact that they have next to nothing, or they have nothing at all, and then it's multiplied from this tiny, tiny base that enables the Lord to show grace. And again, I think that's almost like the less you have, the more God does. That is a theology of grace. And then the doctrine of solus Christus, um, of, of Christ, you know, through Christ alone. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. In other words, they wanted more than just Christ. They wanted, now prove it. Now do these other signs. Now add, give us Jesus plus. And Jesus basically said, no. An evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And Bruno's comment is, sensationalism always wants something more than Jesus. It wants the miracle. It wants the extra. It wants the prosperity. It wants the, there's all sorts of different things you could add to it. It's not to say that miracles and prosperity are wrong, of course. It's just to say people always want more than Jesus. They go, I, I like, it's good to have Jesus, but what about this as well? And Jesus, it's just like, no, you're not going to get that. You're simply going to get the sign of Jonah. It is, a, I think, a very good reading of that to say this is the doctrine of Christ alone which is we were just singing. You don't need all that other stuff. I'm going to go down into the belly of the whale and come out on the third day, and that's the sign you get. Because it means all you need is me. So I really like that. Um, again, some will like it more than others, but I, I think it's brilliant. And of course, you know, probably not, don't need persuading of this, but doctrine is central that the, the synoptic evangelists all understand the application of Jesus' leaven warning in these chapters very differently. So I think this is an interesting point. So let's go again. We're still, I imagine if you're moving through your, your Bible, you're still probably somewhere around the end of chapter 15. So if we just go down to chapter 16 um, and verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. <laughs> again, he's just, it's all about bread, okay? Not just. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves. saying, We, we, we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, which I think in the original Greek says, oh, you numpties. Um, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you don't have any bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? How many baskets did you gather? How is it you fail to understand I didn't speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the reason I find that interesting is because the three synoptic writers understand the leaven in slightly different, obviously overlapping ways, but slightly different ways. And Mark understands it politically about Pharisees and Herod. It's the sort of political power that seems to be the problem. Luke understands it ethically. Don't, don't, be, don't fall for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, as in their lives are out of keeping with what they say. And Matthew understands it doctrinally the leaven of the teaching of the Pharisees. Now, again, those are, they're all consistent, right? Because, of course, the, if you teach one thing, do another, and you're doing the other in order to remain in cahoots with the powers that be, you are making a theological and an ethical and a political error all at once. Which you would say is probably a cheap shot. But an example today would be the sort of very Trumpy evangelicals in or would-be evangelicals in America, right? You, you go, there's a theological compromise being made in light of an ethical compromise for the purpose of political ends. You can, I mean, I say it's a cheap shot because I imagine we would all go, yeah, yeah, there's, some of that is pretty awful. But as, there's probably closer to home examples we could draw out. 
But I think that's a bit was that I'm just making the point that a, a, a teaching problem, an ethical problem, and a political problem are not opposed to each other. They often reinforce each other because people make ethical compromises because they want power, and when they compromise their ethics, they also compromise their doctrine. So all three of them are consistent with each other. But it's just interesting how the three synoptic writers draw out different elements of it. And so Bruno's comment there is Matthew is the theological gospel. And obviously by putting it in italics, um, makes it this is as if it's the only theological. But do you see what I mean? He's saying Matthew's interest here is on the doctrinal layer of this compromise rather than the ethical or the political one. Which I do think in this setting of these chapters is a really interesting observation. So any questions or comments on that one? Any, David? Um, you mentioned yesterday that the incident with the Syrophoenician women came between the feeding of the 5,000, mm. which was for the benefit of the Jews, yes. and the 4,000, which was for the benefit of the Gentiles. Yes. Now, this incident was probably late in the fleet. What could we say to people who give the idea that, that this incident with the Syrophoenician woman actually caused Jesus to change his mind? <laughs> Um, okay so you may well have heard that anyway Um, but what would you if the Syrophoenician woman story is in between the 5,000 and 4,000 so it goes from Jew to Gentile what do you say to people who say oh well Jesus changed his mind as a result of this woman to be honest I don't think you can I don't think you can win the argument on the text alone on that because I think behind it is an implied Christology and and I think I, I think there is plenty to the text that to there's plenty to that particular story that, that suggests to me that Jesus is engaging in banter to try and draw her out rather than simply, you know, saying something profoundly racist and then being persuaded that he, he's wrong, which is obviously how some of the more sort of extremey, let's debunk the whole gospel's kind of end of, the, end of things, try and play the story. But I think the story is just, it would be very odd for somebody, if that was the, their conviction, to be con- persuaded that quickly and that suddenly by a one-liner that's effectively a joke in response to a joke, when Jesus says, oh, what? yeah, but what about the dogs? And she goes, yeah, but the dogs eat the crumbs. You think, gosh, I have been a racist my whole life, and I've suddenly become convinced that I shouldn't be. Yes, I'll heal you, and now feed lots of Gentiles. It just doesn't wash, does it? It, it would be a very, it's, not, it's like a, I think to read it that way would be just incredibly wooden, and to, to, to overlook the dynamics of human conversation and the way that men and women would talk to each other in the ancient world. I also think that, of course, there's lots of trailers earlier in the gospel that Jesus' ministry is going to be for the Gentiles anyway. So although he, of course, has the go nowhere among the Gentiles, just go to Israel in chapter 10, that's not the only... We looked at the slide yesterday on world mission in Matthew and how many times we find that theme emphasised throughout the gospel. So by chapter 15, we're not surprised to find... Or is it chapter 14? We're not surprised to find that he's looking to go beyond and to beyond the, the boundaries of Israel. Um, and obviously that starts with the genealogy, as we saw, and right, right the way through. So again, I think it would be, I think it's a, 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 it might work, I don't think it does, but it might almost work for the story alone, but when read in the gospel as a whole, it doesn't, because there's so many trailers of the fact that the Gentiles are going to be included. And then, of course, you go a step behind that to the, your Christology, and clearly that's the biggest problem with the idea that Jesus is a racist here, is you're basically saying Jesus is sinful. Like, or it, that's what people mean when they say it. And you think, ah, this is just... It's a silliness. It's, it, it's a, often readings like that tell you more about the, the cultural moment that we're in than they do about what actually happened. Because obviously now, it's, and again, it's a very, I'm almost give, I'm giving it too much airtime, really, because it's a, it's, it's a preposterous reading that is, has got no traction in 
scholarly literature, but I, but occasionally you'll see people say it in a particularly kind of gotchery kind of way, mainly because they know that Christians will always feel on the defensive, and rightly so, in a way, about charges of racism. That's really what's going on. It's not because this story... But it is, a, it is an interesting story, and it's quite a challenging one to read, but I think you just have to read it with your ear to the natural dynamics of human conversation and jokiness and playfulness, rather than reading the whole thing as a sort of, you know, wooden... Jesus has changed his entire worldview about the Gentiles in the course of a one-line joke about dogs and crumbs. It just doesn't wash. Chris. Could you turn back a little bit to the Trump with political... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So, so people hear the question about sort of the the idea of how, how do you make a couple of closer to home comments. So I th- I think you obviously the first thing you want to do is you want to examine your own motives, don't you? So is is the posi- you know on a, this particular issue is this is it is it possible that my motives in this discussion or this debate are skewed by a desire for power and affirmation and prestige or status, let's say. Status might be a better word sometimes than power because power implies I want to be the prime minister, but it's often not. It's often I want to... The society is weighted to lead me... I've I've got some high-status opinions and some very low-status opinions as a result of being the kind of person I am. A very low-status opinion is whatever, you know... Two men can't get married. That, that, you know, what I mean, that's a, in in the culture. That's a low state. So obviously, I would expect that the pressure of society is going to push me towards wanting to affirm that they can, and that would be true across the board. And I, but there are probably others where I'd go, oh no, that that might be. I, it's, I've got some higher status opinions as well that I I know that the motive might be mixed. I might well say this is true because the Bible says so. So we, when we did a conference a few years ago, I think I talked about this when it came to it's something like evolution. Like, so for me to believe in evolution is a hot, clearly higher status than believing in a young earth creation view. So I've got to be mindful of the fact that my reading of scripture and tradition taking me in a direction where I can affirm it is obviously the pressure is going, but that's a, that's a much higher status view. So your heart's bound to want to affirm that on the grounds that it, it's clearly much more popular and much more fashionable to hold it. So now, that, I'm not saying the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is about the age of the earth, of course. I'm just saying that the, conf, the conflation of your desire for status and power and influence in a society, your willingness to compromise ethically and your willingness to compromise theologically are all connected. And so the, the first thing we need to do when these discussions come up is, we, in which direction, where is my heart compromised by a desire for further influence and power? The odd thing is, of course, depending on the size of your bubble and the people you actually want to like you, you might be, it might push you the opposite way. Now, in Britain, I suspect it doesn't. Um, there might be little pockets of the subculture where people are more, will get higher status overall by affirming young earth, for instance. I doubt it. I think if someone's affirming... Sorry, this is a weird detour here, but I, I hope it... I just, it's the first one that occurred to me as a, a belief that I've got to be careful I don't hold just because I know it will be more acceptable to fashionable people. Um, reality is people in The Guardian don't care what I think about the age of the earth anyway, so it doesn't matter. But then there are, there are areas where you might, in, in 
the US, I think it's more true, where actually you could have your entire social circle, all the people you wanted to think well of you, were more likely to hold a more conservative view on something. And at that point, you go, well, I've just got to be, this happened to Russell Moore. He would be a good example, I think, of where he held, it actually cost him a lot to affirm things that in British evangelicalism would get you lots of status. But in his case, it cost him his job, it cost him a lot. He had to completely reinvent his life, really. He had to, a lot of, Beth Moore, other people like this, who've almost, they've left their denomination because in the end, they couldn't, couldn't wear it in the context of what was happening in, in their convention. Now, I personally don't think that the bubble I'm in, in New Frontiers, or, or even evangelical, charismatic, reformed thinking in the, in the UK, is anything like large enough or prestigious enough to incline me to do things just because it gets me power in that organization. I just feel like, again, you just gotta know your own heart. I think, no, no, that's, my, that's not my danger. My danger is, I will say things that line up best we can with the more progressive mores of our day. That's where my temptation lies. And so I'm always likely to say things. And I wrote an article 10 years ago to this effect about why pushing left is easier than pushing right. So if I'm pushing to the left on an issue, I feel really edgy and exciting and challenging the status quo. But when I push right and conservative, even on things that I'm absolutely convinced on, like abortion, or whatever, I'm, if I have to be much more nuanced and careful. And, oh, God, I know I, we do need to oppose this, but oh, we're very careful we don't offend anybody. Whereas when I'm pushing left and going, ah, you crazy loony fundamentalist, but yeah, Trump, you know, it just is too easy. Do you see what I mean? And because I, I think that will be true for almost all of us, it might not be true for all conservative evangelicals in the world because there would be plenty of countries where that wasn't true. And I think the US, is, in, depending on where you live, is one of them. But I think in my case, that's just not the, probably not the issue. And, but you will have to judge for yourselves. Like you, there might be some of us who go, yeah, my, my status within conservative evangelicalism matters more than what, you know, I don't know who it might be. What Stephen Fry would think if he heard me say this. Or what, you know, I'm just trying to think of an example of progressive bona fides on everything. But I think for me, that's just not the issue. It's, my, it's what my university friends would think. It's what my neighbors would think. Um, and so I, that doesn't mean you're always right to push right on every issue. Of course it doesn't. It just means that the temptation you will experience if you're British will probably lean that way. At least it, it does if you live in a... And I had this with Brexit, where I, I just... That, that would be the most recent example where I was like... Oh, gosh, like a big part of my take on this is just my bubble is, even though I'm a conservative evangelical pastor, my bubble is just much more left-leaning than the nation as a whole. I didn't realize it was, and I was astonished by the, you know, I had that double whammy, as we all did, of the sort of the Trump and Brexit in the same year, and I, I was like, oh, I, I do believe this, but I just didn't realize how out of step I was with the people in my hairdresser. You know, and you listen to conversations, you think, oh, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a lefty bubble in British terms, even though I'm, I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. You know what I mean? It's weird, and I found that a very odd experience. But then I'm a pastor in, you know, the, what's, what's the percentage of people who vote Labour in Lewisham? 80% or is 80% remain or something? Very, very left area. So in British terms, so I, I hadn't realised how out of step I was. And sometimes you just got to know yourself a bit on these things. I know this is a big detour, but I just think a bit of self-awareness and... And you live in Bermondsey, Chris, so you're obviously a loony lefty as well, in, in, in that sense, I expect. Yeah. Um, Andrew, this is a point where you're younger pastors who are engaging with that a lot. Hmm. That was really helpful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was really... You were willing to write something. 
Well, the article I wrote, is, honestly, I wrote an article called, maybe it was Why Pushing Right is Harder Than Pushing Left, I think is what it was called, about 10 years ago, which is, I think I was beginning to speak publicly about things and, and realised it as I did and thought, uh, that, that it's just the, it's examining your heart. So that's my, that's my version of, of writing it. But obviously since then, I've, I've learned, and I, and I have this when I go to the States, I've, and I've literally, this is quite live, I just, I don't understand where the, exactly how to challenge or not and usually you go, and I'm invited, I'm a guest, I want to honour people. And then occasionally you, you overstep, you go, I just I think this does need a bit of a challenge. But then it often causes a huge stir. And sometimes the people who've invited you, who know the context better, are like, man, that, that didn't serve us. Because now, we, now this is the thing that we're all having to work, at, work through all over again. They had the whole thing with masking. You know, some of these debates like that, and you're like, oh, and I'm just not confident enough that I know the context. But then I also feel, am I just being a wuss because I want the invitation next time. You know what I mean? I, I think you, in some ways, I, like I said yesterday on something else, I'd, I have to, I'd rather live with the dilemma than sweep it away and go, oh no, not an issue here. Because I feel that's probably when you've sold out. But I just don't think it's easy. But thank you. That was very kind of you. Anyway, back to the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But there, there are plenty of parallels, um, and I, I think. Every generation, there are Pharisee and Sadducee-like temptations, and ours is no different. Okay. Um, and then a, a, another sort of doctrinal, a, a slice of doctrine to consider, which I, ho I hope will not be too, um, the, the following page will be much more theologically controversial even in the room, just because eschatology always is. This page, I hope everyone's going, yeah, yeah, I agree with that, but it's actually related to the conversation we've just been having, because it's about the nature of hypocrisy and the way that leadership goes wrong, and you effectively have a short course on leadership in Matthew 23. The last couple of years through, I've done the, I teach on the, the catalyst training course I've done for many years. I actually used Matthew 23, but through, I read Bruno, I thought, th I should do this when I teach a day on leadership. I should look, use this as one of the sessions because it's not just the positive visions of leadership that instruct us. It's sometimes the rants Jesus has against the wrong view. Um, and so the essence of Matthew 23, of course, is, su is summarized at the very beginning. You must be careful to do everything they tell you but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they preach. So, so surprising that you said you must be careful to do all the things they tell you. The, fact, the, the, the people who sit on Moses' seat, they're right in what they teach, but they just don't do it, which is surprising in light of much of what follows. And then you get three contrasts. Verse 4, you get the, the people who lay but don't lift heavy burdens. Verse 5 to 7, the people who live for honour, recognition, and respect. And then the people who love titles, rabbi, father, teacher. Just two days ago, I saw someone do that. Someone, write, uh, someone tweeted something like, I was recently, it was Eddie Arthur, I think, the missiologist and translator. And he wrote, he wrote something, he said, I was told off recently for not using the word doctor of myself. Anybody got any views on that? And I, in the end, I, I kind of wanted to reply, and then I kind of thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't. I do really feel like Matthew 23 is pretty relevant here. Some of us, you know, some of us are real doctors, um, so we are allowed to say, you know, is there a doctor on the plane? And obviously, you know, the running joke about Ross in Friends, or, you know, yeah, but it's like you never expect doctors to get sick. And Ross thoughtfully goes, but we do. <laughs> Not that kind of doctor. And obviously, it hasn't ever come up for me, because in our circles, being a, having a PhD doesn't carry, oddly, doesn't actually carry very much prestige. 
really, in our setting. But for a lot of settings, it really does. And so for people to use it, it's very tempting. But I think this is very relevant. So don't let people call you rabbi. Don't let people call you father. Don't let people call you teacher. Um, some of you will know Steph Liston. He, uh, t- he told me a story about this happening to him where he was in a, in a, he was in a minister's fraternal and a guy from a local Catholic church was there and he was hosting the building. Uh, he was hosting the gathering in his building. And, um, and so Steph comes up and meets him and he says, oh yeah, my, my name's, you know, whatever it is, Father Mark, or I can't remember what his first name was. And Steph says, oh, okay, nice to meet you, Mark. And he says, it's Father Mark. And Steph says, okay, I think, can I just call you Mark? And he goes, no, it's Father Mark. And the guy says, and then Steph says, all right, can I just call you mate? Try to make a light of it. And the guy says, father mate. <laughs> and, and Steph was like, okay, I, I don't think I'm, 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 I probably won't do that. And again, he's now very Britishly just sort of trying to get out of a very awkward conversation. And the guy says, it's my church. And then Steph was like, I, he just couldn't resist it. He was just like, no, it isn't. It's God's church. And then left the conversation. I was like, I just don't, but all right, what a weird. Now, that's obviously quite extreme and in our circles, very unlikely. And there are plenty of people who use the language of, uh, there's plenty of people in our church who, are used, who would refer, use the language of pastor in a more formal way and because it's more of a cultural thing. So I'm not the guy who, object, who goes, you mustn't call me that. I don't do that. And I, I think we've realized collectively as a church that's just not culturally a sensitive or wise thing to do because it's something that's much more common in some cultures. They don't only do it with pastors. They do it with lots of people, with professionals of almost any sort. So it, that, I don't worry about it, but I definitely wouldn't go, this is what I want you to call me. And this is partly why I just think it's very relevant. And, but I think the same goes for, you know, doctor or teacher or rabbi or father. I just, that's, anyway, because the loving of titles, it, is, it can carry a lot of validation for people to say, oh, are you so-and-so? Oh. And so the, the contrast here between people who lay but don't lift, people who live for honour, recognition and respect, people who love titles, um, in contrast, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted, which is, of course could be a summary of the entire kingdom it's not only about leaders and who gets lifted up and who gets lifted down this is that's a summary of the magnificat that's a summary of the beatitudes that's a summary of matthew's gospel as a whole in a way you humble yourself and cry out to god for rescue it's a summary of how people get saved the humility required to say lord i believe help me in my unbelief means you get saved people who say i don't need you i'm going to go into the judgment in my own clothes i don't need to wear your clothes and he said, why aren't you wearing the right clothes? You need to be clothed by me, otherwise you don't qualify and you get humbled. And so in a way, it's obviously a gospel summary, not just a summary of this gospel. And then it moves from there into the seven woes. I like his, I like his formulation here. It, just, it works for me. Closes of doors. Woe to you, you shut the kingdom in people's faces. Crosses of seas. You go over the oceans to make a single convert and then you bring him back and make him just as much a son of hell as you are. <gasps> Swearers of oaths, swallowers of camels. <laughs> that is one of Jesus' best, sort of, isn't it? You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. It's just such a funny image. It's just a brilliant piece of rhetoric. Cleaners of cups, graveyards of bones. Woe to you, you whitewashed graves. And killers of prophets, which of course is where he builds at the end. And that's where the Zacharias and Abarakai thing comes in that we read yesterday. So I like that. They're just the, in, they're in the, you know, three pairs and then I kind of, I don't know what those little boxes Oh, the boxes have gone weird. 
The thick line boxes are meant to be different sizes, but really, you don't need to worry about that text. I know you'd be able to easily work your PowerPoint magic, but it couldn't matter less. I think we know what it says. On the right-hand side, Davis and Allison have a, a, a great quote on this. All the vices here attributed to scribes and Pharisees have attached themselves to Christians and in abundance. Eastern Orthodox bishops have enthroned themselves at the front of churches. Pentecostal leaders have sat on raised stages, and not just Pentecostal leaders, New Frontiers leaders. That's what. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean no one can. I'm on a stage right now because I can be so I can be seen. But you you got to be aware of the temptation to be elevated for not just you know for prestige and not simply you know a signal of signal of authority rather than simply visibility, which is I hope the reason we do it. And we've always one of our philosophy ministries of church. The stage got to be incredibly low. Like actually, even in, the, in all the venues, it's just like this, this stage is literally large enough so that Demeji can see me now, but not large enough so that I'm like, oh, it sounds petty, but I th- you've got to think about these things, haven't you? Um, Christian leaders of all stripes have bestowed upon themselves honorifics, including father and teacher and bishop. And of course, many post-Constantine churches have gloried in pomp and circumstance with leaders adorning themselves with costly raiment. I'm becoming very, very self-aware about my clothes. I don't think anybody would ever accuse me of adorning myself with costly raiment. Like, there's, I have many of those other flaws probably inside, but not that one. Um, and then, but this is one of my favourite quotes in one of my Matthew Henry. I mean, oh, I know he's not the most fashionable guy, but wow, what, well, this is a fantastic picture. Honour is like the shadow which flees from those that pursue it and grasp at it, but follows those that flee from it. Boom! What a fantastic quote. Honor is like a shadow. And you, I, I love that because you, it's such a good little kid image, isn't it? You see little children, always try, they do chase the shadow and the shadow just runs away. But of course, as soon as you leave it and walk away, it chases you. And that's what honor is like. If you try and get it, 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 it it's like a bar of soap in the bath. It never lands. But if you just say, I'm not going to worry about this and just walk on, it follows you everywhere you go. Like, what an image! Thank you, Matthew Henry. I'm going to high five him in the new creation. I'm not sure. He probably won't know what a high five is, really. But like, Puritans didn't do that. Um, really. So I really like that. But I, I just think it's worth, you know, it's a good passage to teach through, perhaps particularly amongst leaders. Although, again, in the context of the, you know, the 10 years or so that we're in, this sort of great shaking in, of evangelical authority structures, and not just evangelical, clearly, in the Catholic Church and elsewhere. I just think, Davis and Allison wrote that 30, 40 years ago. So it's not like they're speaking about a very now issue. It's just always an issue. But I do think there's lots in here to go to reflect and sort of self-examine and not in a morbid way, but genuinely to see the, the power of this kind of challenge and to allow ourselves to sometimes be skewered in our conscience by passages like this, which are really challenging. Questions or comments on Matthew 23? Carl. Feel free to say join Catalyst and watch the video. <laughs> um, what does lame but unlifting Actually, yeah, I don't think I did go into that on the, on the Catholic course at all. Um, I mean, I, I think it, perhaps there was a... I think when you're, you're... I think there are ways of calling people to godly living that... say, I'm listening about particularly for paid pastors. So the kind of thing I might do is that I would call people to a way of living the devotional Christian life that was simply unworkable for somebody who wasn't played by the church. Um, and I hope I don't, and I've got church members of ours in the room, so I can probably tell you, but I think it can be easy to forget, particularly if you've been in full, which I have, been in full-time Christian ministry for many years, 
it can be easy to forget what it's like when you have a, a, all the commitments of family and friendship and all the other things, as well as a lengthy commute and a busy job and people sending emails at home in the evening, like all the other things I have, but with no sense of spiritual refreshing in the job, which of course I do get. Or you just, I'm, I'm on paid time right now and we're just sitting here worshiping together. But this is fantastic. But, and many of us, that's our setting. Many of us, it isn't. But I think in a setting like that, if I'm teaching on the devotional life, for instance, it would be very easy for me to lay on people burdens that didn't take due account of the fact that the amount of time that Trev has to pursue spiritual things, a member of our church who works in um, sort of tax advising, thing, but he's just got far less time like that to pursue God in his, in his job than I do. And so actually, if I'm teaching on devotional lives, am I putting a burden on him that were I in his shoes, I wouldn't carry myself? That's the kind of thing. Even what I said yesterday about fasting, I suspect that's just... You know, I don't think, I think it's good to challenge people on it, but if you're teaching publicly about it, you're going to think, am I laying a burden that, and then I'm not helping you lift it. Am I sort of saying, you need to do this, but I'm not providing you with the help or the resources or the pastoral support or whatever you might need to do it. And I'm sure there are plenty of more, you know, I think we, I, I may raise the question yesterday about sort of sexuality, but, and that, and of course, I don't think I can just go, I'm going to become celibate in order to bear the burden of somebody who's same-sex attracted, but I also think I've got to think carefully about is the, are, am I doing, are we doing what we can to ensure that the church is a place that helps you carry the burden and not just tells you that you need to carry it? Um, which is true, obviously, not just of same sex, it's true of single people generally, right? Um, so there's lots of things like that where, so I'd, again, you could be, you could, if you're not careful, you could disappear into, oh, I never say anything because I might be telling them to do something I, I don't, I'm not called to do myself. But I think it's asking that question, isn't it? Going, am, am, I, am, I, am I carrying this myself? And if I'm, if I'm not and shouldn't be, am I doing what I can to help? Or are we collectively doing what we can to help them carry it rather than just insisting that they do? Probably would be a, a start. But I don't think I did particularly talk about that on the course. It's a really good question. And, and I mean, I just, with all of these things, Matthew 23, I just you want to reflect, don't you? Just like, I want to ponder that. Go, which, okay, let's go through, almost go through the seven woes. And one or two of them, you might go, it's just not an issue. Yeah, I just, I don't, I don't worry about the... Um, you know, swearers of oaths or close the door thing. I don't think that's me. I'm not shutting the kingdom in people's faces, I don't think. Best I know. But we might go cleaners of cups. Yeah. My, my expectation, of my I care more about my perceived godliness than my actual godliness, which is back to the secret place of thunder we did yesterday. Yeah, that is a, an issue for me. I need to, just, God needs to do something in me on that. So, I hope there's some stuff. This is, more, this is a more pastoral page, isn't it, to, to think through. Man, am I being dim here? Oh, it's, oh, no, just, uh, yeah. Yes. Okay, eschatology in Matthew 24 to 25. This one is not a very, well, I suppose it does have pastoral implications, but it's not particularly got the same tone to it at all. I love this about just going through a gospel as a whole. You just have to, have to move the kind of the mood changes as the text does. Um, so, there are a bunch of different ways. I know that there's obviously going to be facetious remarks about the fact that I say Paul, comma, Wilson, smiley face. Just to be the Paul I'm referring to at the top of that column is Ian Paul, not the Apostle Paul. And just thought it's well worth saying, because obviously if you're like, well, obviously this is Paul's view and mine. That's just hyper smug and, and wrong. Um, but this is really, how are you going to read Matthew 24 to 25 and where are you going to put the breaks in the text 
assuming that you are going to say, I'm going to start from the assumption that some of Matthew 24 to 25, at least, is about the destruction of Jerusalem, and some of it is about the end, and, or as in, it's all about the end, but some of it is about the the day of judgment, the future coming of Christ or something. I'm assuming something like that, and then, but then how are you going to decide where the shift happens, or where the shifts, plural, happen? And I don't think that's very easy. So if you're preaching through it, where do you make the transition? Some of the famous problems in a passage like this. Some of us have, you know, uh, yeah, we read perhaps Jesus and the victory of God or something like that years back. And we're like, that's very convincing. A lot of this is clearly about the destruction of Jerusalem, the coming on the clouds of heaven, you know, all that sort of, you know, Tom Wright has a lovely line about that. He said, actually, we've got to realize that people think about the coming on the clouds of heaven as if it is coming towards the earth. Whereas actually in Daniel, as we started this morning, it's about the coming on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days and receiving all honour. So is the coming of the Son of Man about him coming to earth or about him going to the right hand of the Ancient of Days? Um, because Echomenoi could be, could be translated in either way. And then Tom Wright reports the story of teaching this somewhere and someone now saying, now I don't know whether I'm coming or going, which I thought was a really good response. But as in, it's a problem because then you go, oh, so it says immediately after the tribulations of that days, then they will see the Son of Man coming in glory. So plenty of people in church, in, in, plenty of sceptical interpreters of the New Testament would say, yeah, it's very simple. Jesus believed that the space-time universe was going to end around AD 70, and it didn't. And he was wrong. And Christians have been spending the last 2,000 years trying to get out of it. There's plenty of people out there, you know, sort of in, in the sort of more critical, from a critical scholarly perspective, who would make that case. And so how are you going to think through Matthew 24 to 25 collectively? And this is four or five different ways of doing it. I don't claim they're the only ones. Obviously, I have put myself on there to try and, I feel like it's the kind of thing about which you have to put your name to something. Um, but so the way Bruno does it is to say, Matthew 24, 1 to 14, up to the phrase, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come, that that is a summary of all of human history. Then, so, when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, that is a transition in the text to the events of AD 70, leading up to, and then, of course, the culmination in the destruction of Jerusalem. But then at verse 29, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. We end up with talking about the end of the world. It begins to become the focus from verse 29 onwards. And effectively, Jesus expects his return within a generation and gets it wrong is one view. Or Jesus is not wrong because prophecy is conditional. So, and this is an interesting, t- I heard a, a really interesting paper on this from two guys at King's College London who are saying, all right, well, let's, let's make the worst, the, the most bleak case for the evangelical is Jesus did predict it. Here's all the ways he predicted it. He was clearly wrong because the world didn't end. And that's what we just have to wrestle with that reality. But now let's stand back and say, what does prophecy actually do? And then they go to Jeremiah 18 and they say prophecy is there to provoke response, not to give certain predictions about the future. And if the response is different from that which the prophet anticipates or is, is the response he wants to provoke, then the judgment coming doesn't come. And Jeremiah 18 is quite explicit about that, isn't it? It said, if I say I'm going to do this, but then people repent, I, won't, I will relent from the disaster I brought. So obviously the story of Jonah, which we're preaching through at the moment as a church. Nineveh is going to be overthrown. They repent. Okay, well, I won't. So if you, you might read Matthew 24 that way. 
And some do. And they would say, yeah, so this is Jesus saying, judgment is coming and everything's going to be destroyed. And, but, the people, but the response of the people is such that that judgment is delayed or something like that. And that's an interesting, so Hayes and Strainer, the, the pair of people like that, uh, that, I, that I heard make that case. I thought that was a really interesting take. It's not personally the one I take. I do take it about prophecy generally. I, it's certainly true, but I don't think it works personally with this text. But it's a, it's a, good, a good reading, I think, if you're going to do it that way. So they effectively, in this kind of school of thought, you'd say from verse 29 onwards, probably, the rest of it is about the end of the world. Opposite end of the spectrum is Uncle Tom and Uncle Peter, um, both of whom former Think Conference speakers, so we obviously don't really want to disagree with them unless we have to. Um, but they would say that actually the whole, and writers make this case at much more length and much more, you know, most of us who've studied this kind of text will probably have come, studied, at least encountered Tom Wright's take on it. Um, I mean, he's done it very eloquently and very well, but he says, no, this is all about the events leading to AD 70. And so the coming of the Son of Man relates to Daniel 7, which happens as the temple is destroyed and Jesus is vindicated. So if we were to push the envelope there, we'd say, so Neil and Caroline are here just up to him, blessing and on your kingdom shall reign, sing unto the ancient. That in a way, the fulfillment of that text is the destruction of Jerusalem because the coming of the Son of Man to the right hand of the Ancient of Days happens at AD 70 in the vindication of the Son of Man. And what Wright does is he says, well, in a way, Jesus' vindication is he's raised from the dead. In a way, it's his ascension into heaven. And in a way, it's his coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days and ruling and having his prophetic judgment about Jerusalem vindicated in history as Rome destroys the temple. I, to, to me, when I first heard it, I thought, that's really interesting, but I, I'm not sure I can quite, I'm not sure I quite buy it, but I can see it's, cleverness and I still that's kind of still kind of how I feel um but it's quite a you know because when you first hear it you think oh for goodness sake how does that but then you go back to Daniel 7 yeah the coming of the son of man isn't about the return to earth it's about approaching the ancient earth that's the direction of travel and so there is a lot about that I find convincing I just can't quite wear that the entire section is about that I certainly struggle if the sheep and the goats maybe the other two you know, master goes away for a long time, comes back, what have you done with what I gave you? Maybe that's about AD 70, maybe. I'm not sure it is. But the sheep and the goats, I just, how is that? I, I just can't, I, I really can't see it. But Lightheart goes there as well. And obviously, we've, I've quoted him a lot favorably. And I think if Lightheart and Light... Lightheart and Wright are both on the same page on something like that, then it would take a very brave person to say, you're both wrong. But I still think they are. Um, at least when it comes to the, the end of Matthew. To, I kind of feel like maybe that could run on for longer than, than Bruner and Alison think it can, but I personally can't see it running on the whole way through chapter 25. You've got people like um, Bill Mounts and Leon Morris. They would go, oh yeah, chapter 24 is... And this is a more sort of you know, conservative evangelical take, probably. This is what you'd get in here. Um, and it's kind of pretty classic conservative evangelical take. Yeah, verses 1 to 14 are an overview of all human history. Then you get the stuff on AD 70, but then it transitions to the end of the world. And there are, maybe because there are multiple fulfillments possible, but when people say, for, the, the difficulty with that, the, the thing that gives right and light heart their confidence that this view is right, is the phrase, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. 
So the conservative evangelical view is, is a bit in here about AD 70, and then it talks about the end of the world for the rest of the passage. But the, the, the thing that makes that hard to sustain is the phrase, this generation won't pass away. And so often what the conservative evangelical view does is to say, this generation doesn't mean 40 years. It might, often people talk about, many means this race or this group of people, the Jewish people, will not pass away. Um, and so they would say, yeah, well, the, the main focus is on final judgment of all the rest. And for me, the problem with that is, I don't think that is what this generation means in Matthew. We've seen a number of passages where he talks about what will happen to this generation and the rest of the gospel. To me, it's pretty explicitly not saying Jewish people. It's talking about this generation who've rejected my preaching. So I just, that, that's why I'm, I'm not there either, although, again, I can see what they're trying to do. So the view I have, uh, and, and Ian Paul has defended this, I guess, better and in more detail than me, is that chapter 24 generally is talking about the events leading up to AD 70. Um, and it transitions at verse, I think it's verse 36 of chapter 24. That's where I think the transition mark happens. So if you, if you take the view, I will, obviously the bits about the, the abomination that causes desolation are obviously about Jerusalem being destroyed by Rome. But the sheep and the goats at the end of chapter 25 is obviously about the end where does it move from AD 70 to the end? And I think the best place to see that d division taking place is when he says, but about that day or hour, no one knows. As in, here's what's going to happen soon, because the, you've asked me two questions. You've said, what's the sign of the end of the age? And how, what are the signs that all of these things about the building, you know, do you see, teacher, these glorious stones? Not one of them will be left on top of each other. Wow. What will be the sign of this coming and of your coming and the end of the age? And if you read that as two questions, not one, then you can say, well, I'll give you two answers. AD 70, these are the signs. This is what will happen here, 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 and here, and then that'll happen. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even me. And that's, this is how that's going to happen, but I'll promise you this is, I won't tell you the when, but I'll tell you the what and how it will happen. So that's my view. I'm not, I'm, again, I can see arguments in favour of all the others. Um, and so I think the final judgment is, is effectively is in view in the, you know, the famous passage about the ones who are taken and the ones who are left, which I don't obviously think is about a pre-tribulation rapture or anything like that. Um, and I think that's the taken are the ones who are judged effectively like taken into captivity and the ones who are left are the, the remnant um, rather than the other way around. Whereas in, of course, in the rapture view of that passage, the ones who are, it's good to be taken, you know, whereas, <laughs> whereas I feel it's more like Liam Neeson. Now here's the bad news. You're going to be taken. <laughs> you know, and, and sorry, if you haven't seen that movie, you haven't lived. Um, but anyway, the idea of being taken is, a, taken is a bad thing. Taken is the armies are coming and they will take you into captivity. So judgment is the one for the taken and the ones who are left. You, you want to be left. Whereas in the rapture, the left behind view, you want to be taken because the rest of the world's going to get ruined. So I'm the other way around from that. And then there's an alternative option, which is, I mean, there's, various permutations you could trace but an alternative option is that yes it's an overview of all history at the start and then you have the events leading up to AD 70 are mostly what's in view the first two Matthew 25 parables focus on faithful waiting not final judgment according to works and then it actually only gets to final judgment for the sheep and the goats that's the, that's another way of reading it now there's a lot of content there and I'm, I, obviously we could you could do a whole day on going round the houses on, on what view is best. But are there any questions or clarifications on what I mean, even if people go, I'm just going to have to think that one through. Dave King. Can you just clarify for me that Matthew 25 parables 
Uh, correct. No, I mean, I mean that what he means is that, the, that what they would say is that the Matthew 25 parable, the parables, of, I think you can see it more easily with the, 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 um, the talents. Is this, I, he goes away on a journey, he comes back, and effectively in AD 70, that's when he's like, what have you done with what I gave you? But right and light, how we go, and that's also the focus in view of the sheep and the goats, is the next gen, as in this next generation between AD 30 and AD 70, not the one after AD 70. So they effectively would say none of this is about what we would call the end. And Wright often is quite polemic about that. He goes, then no one's talking about the end of the space-time universe. Um, which obviously when you call it the space-time universe, it all sounds a bit sort of Marvel. And you, but I, I, I think there is also the renewal of all things is in view and is in view in the prophets. And I don't think it's unreasonable to talk about it. But So yeah, that's what they mean. Any other? Howard. Is, you know, the prophetic kind of telescopes up. Yes. We tend to go with this, oh, it's 80, 70 onwards. But I see bits and pieces that, that are actually the crucifixion onwards. Um, obviously, destroy this temple. Yeah. That is the crucifixion. Yeah. The, the moon will be dark. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. When, when Peter says that, they all go, oh, my word. Yeah. Happened. Yeah, agreed. Even you could, you know, let's not do it now, you could talk about what does the abominable sacrilege or... Mm. Could that be the crucifixion of the Christ, you know, the most... Okay. So could we start further back and go there? I haven't worked out the full scheme. Yeah, I mean, I think, though, to me, that is what's implied in the... That's what most of these people, including me, mean by events leading to AD 70. So, I, I, yeah, clearly, I mean, I, I think the abomination of desolation is, you know, the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem, personally, but I can... I, there is a case for it saying it's, it's the crucifixion. But to me, the Peter on the day of Pentecost is the best evidence that the sun is darkened and the moon will turn to blood before the coming of the day of the Lord. This has been fulfilled now. To me, that's the best evidence that the, sun, the darkening of the sun and the moon and the moon turning to blood is not about the events of the end, but it's about the events of Pentecost. That's because Peter explicitly says so. He quotes Joel and says, that's happening now. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So to me, that's very convincing. Good boys. I was, getting, I was going to say indisputable. It clearly isn't, because there's plenty of people who get very excited about blood moons to this very day. But I, but I, don't, I think it's, it's obvious that, to me that in Acts 2, Peter is saying the prophetic promises of the sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood are ways of... It's a bit like we would say earth-shattering events. COVID was an earth-shattering event. We don't literally mean the earth was broken into a million pieces. We mean it changed everything, and that's what Pentecost is. So I definitely buy that. that. But that's, I think, what all of these guys mean by events leading up to AD 70. They don't mean the final few months. They mean the events between Jesus saying it and the destruction of Jerusalem. Cross, resurrection, Pentecost, gospel going to the ends of the earth from their perspective, which it, of course it does, and the destruction of the temple. Okay, let's do one more page and then we'll break. Um, and this, we'll finish this, uh, this doctrinal section. I'd like, this is, this, we've talked about sort of the pastoral challenges of leadership and contextualization, talked about the end times. Let's have another massive gear shift and talk about an order of worship. I like this. This is, obviously, you may remember the, um, this, if you came for the Revelation conference, we did this as well, just looked at almost like a liturgical reading of Revelation. Um, but I think you can see an order of worship in Matthew 26. Obviously, there is, a, there is a narrative prelude which doesn't fit into a liturgical form of worship, although it, it is sort of introductory, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. There's then a call to worship, which is the, the woman comes up. She obviously 
anoints Miss Mary of Bethany, I think, you know, anoints Jesus um, with the with the oil, wipes it, wipes it, uh, his feet with her hair, is, you know, pours out worship, and people have a problem with it. And he says, "Oh no, she's done a beautiful thing for me. Wherever what she does is, whatever the gospel's preached, what she does will be told in memory of her." Um, and it's an, I want effectively it's a call to extravagant sacrificial worship and people often use that story in isolation to talk about the call to worship but I think you can so it is effectively a call to worship in the context of the chapter then <laughs> this is a bit more mischievous then there's a collection and they paid him 30 pieces of silver I'm, I'm being a bit more as a, the hints were joking there um, so every time you take up an offering it's basically blood money that's that's not the claim um, there's a call to self-examination which of course in the sort of more you know in a more formal liturgy, like an Anglican Book of Common Prayer, the, you know, the call to self-examination is, is crucial, of course. They began to say to him after one another, is it I, Lord? It's like, I tell you, one of you is going to let me down. Okay, is that me? Have I look into my soul? And there is the ministry, of course, of word and sacrament, which is clearly what's happening at the, at the Passover, which is not just the giving of the meal, it's the, it's the promise that accompanies the meal, and that the meal itself seals and explains. And so I think we've got to Obviously, I hope I don't need to persuade anyone, a very rich sacramental theology running through the uh, Matthew 26, this sort of take, eat, this is my body, drink it, all of you, this is my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But this is the ministry of the word and the sacrament is at the heart of Matthew 26. Then there is a song. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Speculation, admittedly, but the idea that Jews on the Passover would sing the Hallel Psalms, culminating in Psalm 118, I just find it, we can't prove this, but I think the chances that the hymn that they sung included or perhaps were exclusively Psalm 118, where Jesus knows exactly what it means. And we sang it this morning. The stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I think it's amazing, the idea that it, that's, I, I think it's pretty likely, based on the fact that the Hallel Psalms were used for this exact purpose, that if they gather together and say, right, what hymns shall we sing? There's, <laughs> you know, they're not going, should we sing When I Survey? You know, they're, they're, you know the hymn, what they mean by the hymns is like, okay, these are the, the Hallel hymns that we would sing at this time of year. And Psalm 118 is very likely, I think. I mean, that might be too strong. I think it's a, there's a good chance that's the hymn they sang. But the idea that Jesus is singing that in the sort of, April night air with his disciples as he's about to go to the cross is so moving that I feel like I really hope it's true even if I can't prove that it was and there's an exhortation from scripture you're all going to fall away but I'm urging you when you you know Peter when you return strengthening brothers it's written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered there's obviously a night wrestling in prayer nevertheless not as I will but as you will and there's a commission okay let's go which is you know Time to roll, and we're going to go here. Let's do this, that kind of idea. And that, as I say, the collection is facetious in, in many ways, um, which is the only one that I put in quotes. But I think there's quite a lot there, actually. I think, as a sort of, there's like, you could do it, you could, and I would just have a liturgical reading of this chapter saying there's a lot of, if not nearly all, of the elements of Christian worship incorporated within this chapter that ostensibly is just a story about Jesus' last night. But I think behind it, there's a lot of different elements of the worship service, which obviously that passage has loomed very large. Um, oh, you're right. Did I do something then, or did you? Okay, fine. All right, just feel free. <laughs> um, and then just down this cloud, is before we get to the break, um, some of you will have come across this before, but the language of the handover. 
paradidomi, the, the verb to, to hand over, which in Latin became the, the traditor, the tr which was where we get our, both our word tradition, but also our word traitor. Because both traditions and traitors are things which are handed over. And that play on words runs through the chapter. So notice the handover language. In fact, can we just do this? Let's just go through and read them out loud because it's really great. And I just, I'd love to leave you with something that I feel confident is intentional rather than these bogus collections and all sorts of other things that may or may not be right. Matthew 26, verse 2. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So there is... Here's what this is. This is a handover. That's what's happening tonight. The Son of Man is going to be handed over from you guys to someone else. You go down to verse 15 or verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What would you give me if I hand him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So, again, handover language, and which we, which we, om in, when we, omit or squish when we translate it delivered, which is kind of fine, but I do think the handover is, is, is better language, as, we'll, as hopefully as we'll see. Um, so from that moment, he sought an opportunity to parabidomi, paradidomi. I, he sought an opportunity to hand him over. So again, what we, in, the, in the, the phrase, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, you translate that, on the night he was handed over. And it's just an interesting one, because it sort of festers a little bit. It's like, so who exactly is handing him over? Obviously, we would say, that's clearly about Judas. But we'll see, there may even be more to it than that. Let's go down to verse 21. And as they were eating, he said to them, truly, I say to you, one of you will hand me over. Yeah, one of you will pass me over to the authorities. Verse 23, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will will hand me over to the authorities. The Son of Man goes as it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is, is handed over. It would have been better for that man if he hadn't been born. Keep going down, and then he obviously passes out the bread. Verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, the one who will hand me over is at hand. But keep going, because this is no longer... You say all of those could be translated betrayed and we'd lose nothing. But just keep going. Matthew 27, two, uh, 1 and 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate the governor. So this is no longer betrayal language. Right? I mean, obviously, the, the, they're going to hand him over to Pilate, but that's not an act of betrayal. That's an act, they're, they're fulfilling, they would see it, their legal obligations. They, they, that's not Judas, that's the chief priests and elders. So Jesus is being handed from Judas to the chief priests and the elders, and they are then handing him over to the soldiers and to Pilate. Keep going down, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor, oh, I think I've got the wrong passage there. I have got the wrong passage there. That's annoying. I've got the wrong reference in my notes. Sorry about that. Um, but we'll go down to verse 18, which is still there. So the crowd is now in the, in the process of you know, choosing Barabbas. Pilate says, do you want to choose Jesus or Barabbas? Verse 18, for Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they, that is the chief priests and the elders, had delivered him or had handed him over to him. And then verse 26, 
Then Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having had Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. So who's doing the handing over? Well, Judas is, and then the chief priests and the elders are to the soldiers, and then they are to Pilate, and then Pilate is handing him over to the soldiers to crucify him. And it's the same word running throughout all of them. But there's more. Because Isaiah 53 describes the Son of Man in the Septuagint, describes the Son of Man being effectively handed over for our sins. And the idea that all the sins of the world are laid on him and he has then been poured over and that he now lives to make intercession for them. But that's as a result of, it's the Lord who handed over Christ to Judas, Pilate and everybody else. So actually who's responsible for the great handover of Christ for the sins of the world? Well, in a way it's Judas and the chief priests and Pilate and the soldiers and in a way it's the father himself handing him over for the sins of the world. So it's a really beautiful amount of depth, I think, even just that one word um, as you trace it through these, these chapters and reflect on some of the Old Testament parallels. Andrew, what would be the connection between handing over and worship? I mean, you've obviously put it on the same mm. Um, well I could try and defend it by saying because this is why we worship but actually I'll just say because they're both in Matthew 26 that's the it's in other words the main point of that slide is the order of worship but this is a really it's a sort of too good to miss observation about the flow of Matthew 26 that's the only link really yeah yeah so this is just a sort of a nerdy linguistic point but it's kind of fun so that that to be a so when Paul says, for instance, um, I praise you for remembering the traditions that I gave to you, then the Greek behind that is, I praise you for remembering all the things I handed over to you. So a, so a tradition, traditor, is from the, from the Latin, but it's a traditor is a hander over, which means that a tradition is something which is handed over, but a traitor is also someone who hands over. Do you see, that's the connection, and it's just a sort of... Sometimes those linguistic things illuminate things, and Luke Daviditis is obviously rummaging through his 12th century English lexicon to check that it's all true. But that's, that's all I meant. It's a, a way of making the point the two, there's a play on words there. Um, okay. Right, let's pause, and we'll take a break for half an hour, and we'll start again at 11.30.